Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Central London service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. This is Luke chapter 3, and I'm going to read the first, the first 20 verses. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Eturia and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Albalani, during the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it's written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness... Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight and rough ways smooth, and all peoples will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they said, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you were required to, he told them. Soldiers asked him, what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and all wondering in their heart if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water. But one who's more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn he'll burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire and with many other words john exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them but when john rebuked herod the tetrarch because of his marriage to herodias his brother's wife and all the other evil things he'd done herod added this to them he locked john up in prison i wonder whether you give natalie please a very warm welcome as she comes Good morning at Christchurch. How are we doing this morning? Um, thank you for such a warm welcome. I know eventually you will stop wooing and I'll be very sad, um, but I shall appreciate it for now. Um, <laughs> if I ha- thank you. <laughs> if I haven't met you before, I'm one of the leaders here um, at the Central Service. Uh, please make yourself known to me after the services. I'd love to meet you. Um, cheeky life update can anyone notice anything different about me there's lots of people being here like I hate this question (laughs) that's right I've got new glasses well done Um, I actually realized that I needed new glasses the last time I preached when I couldn't see my notes Um, so I can assure you I can see them now so there'll be no heresy in Jesus name Uh, (laughs) 
So we're continuing our series on Luke's gospel. If you've been with us over the past few weeks, you will know that we are aiming to look through the gospel of Luke throughout the course of this year. And over the past few weeks, we've been looking at the events that sort of precede Jesus's ministry. So his birth, when he's presented to the temple. Last week, we looked at when he visited Jerusalem with his parents. And today is probably like the last sort of passage that we're going to look at before Jesus steps forward and starts his ministry and we're looking at the life and ministry of John the Baptist. Um, Now if you can recall a talk I did a few weeks ago when I was doing sort of an intro to the Gospel of Luke, you will remember the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah was a priest, a Levite, and Elizabeth was his wife. They were an elderly couple who had been waiting on God for a child. And as Zechariah went into the temple to perform his priestly duties, he's met by the angel Gabriel, who tells him that he will have a son. And this is how the son is described. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So as we see here, John is a very special child. He has a special calling from God to prepare the people's hearts for the Messiah. Um, unfortunately Zechariah is doubtful he doesn't see how this can happen and the angel Gabriel silences him he comes out to the temple people are asking what's happened what's happened and he cannot say anything at all then if you go through the next couple of chapters you see the angel Gabriel speaking to Mary promising Mary that she will have a son and she will name him Jesus and he will be the Messiah And then Mary goes to visit Elizabeth because they're cousins. She goes to visit Elizabeth whilst Elizabeth is pregnant. And the scriptures tell us that as Mary approaches her, the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy because it's filled with the Holy Spirit. Exactly what Gabriel said would take place. And then John is born. Zachariah can finally speak and say that his name is to be John. Um, And he prophesies as to what John will go on to do and ultimately Jesus as well. Now, is anybody a big fan of going to concerts here? Anyone like going to concerts? Yeah, great. Um, If you know me, then you know I absolutely love music. And obviously that means I love going to gigs. Um, Last week, I made the fatal error of trying to buy Beyonce tickets I was ready. I entered the pre-sale. I wasn't going to do the general sale. Like, then you know you're setting yourself up for failure. No, you join the pre-sale and, like, you've got your link poised at 9.59 so you can get in there straight at 10 a.m. to get the tickets. I clicked on the link, 10 a.m. 
I'm told, congratulations, Natalie. You have 370,000 people in the queue ahead of you. And it was at that moment I realized I will never see Beyonce in concert. Um, but if you are familiar with going to gigs, you will know that when the ticket says doors open at 6 p.m., that's all that happens. The main artist never comes out on the time stated on the ticket. It's probably a couple hours after that that you actually see the main artist. But what happens is that they send out a support act. Um, maybe it's someone who's of a similar genre. And the whole purpose of that person is to get the crowd hyped for the main event. They know that people aren't really coming to see them, but they need to make sure that the crowd is ready so that when the main artist comes out, everyone's prepared for it. So in a way, we can sort of look at John the Baptist as being Jesus's support act. He knows that ultimately he's not there to draw attention to himself. In fact, in the Gospel of John, which is quite confusing because it wasn't written by the John we're talking about today. It was written by another John. But in that Gospel, John the Baptist says that he must decrease and Christ must increase. His whole purpose is to make Christ known to us. And he does that by preparing people's hearts for it. So how does he do this? Let's have a look. At our passage. Luke begins the chapter by setting the scene for us. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Euteria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. So first of all, again, if you remember my talk a few weeks ago, He's using facts. He's using factual information to anchor the story. John isn't a figment of our imagination. He's not some fictional character that Luke has made up. No, he existed in history when these people existed in history. Theophilus and the other readers of the gospel can pinpoint what is happening in this time. Secondly, let's have a look at some of the people that he introduces us to because it says a lot about the political and religious climate at the time. First of all, we have Tiberius Caesar, who was emperor of the Roman Empire from 14 to 37 AD. In 19 AD, he forced all Jews of military age to join the Roman army and expel the rest of the Jewish population from Italy unless they denied their religion. And as he got older, it's said that he became increasingly more violent, choosing to torture at whim. Then we have Pontius Pilate, who was the governor of Judea and a Roman prefect, which was similar to a supreme judge at that time. His main responsibility was to maintain law and order in the region. Pilate was said to have done so by using any means necessary, even brute force. Then we have Herod Antipas, who was the Tetrarch of Galilee. A Tetrarch was a provincial ruler who was like a king in their region of power, but subordinate to the emperor. Herod Antipas's father was King Herod, who previously ordered the massacre of thousands of children in an attempt to kill Jesus after he was born. Herod Antipas was also called out by John, as we saw in our passage, for marrying his half-brother's wife, Herodias. So... The people who are in charge, those who are leading this empire, they're not moral, upstanding men. 
But what about the religious leaders? Surely they are better. So we have Annas and Caiaphas, who were the Jewish high priests, the supreme religious rulers of the Jewish faith. Annas was in power first, followed by his son-in-law, Caiaphas. They clearly desired to keep power and influence in the family, and Annas was said to still have a big input into matters after being deposed of his duties. And according to the Talmud, which is a key religious um, text in Jewish religious law and theology, this is how Annas and Caiaphas were described. Woe to the house of Annas, woe to their serpent's hiss. They are high priests, their sons are keepers of the treasury, their son-in-laws are guardians of the temple, and their servants beat people with staves. Nice. Um, so what Luke is trying to show us here is that the people who are in charge, the people who have religious and political power, they are not good people. They are power hungry, they are evil, they are corrupt. And John and ultimately Jesus are coming to shake up the world order. They're bringing a kingdom message that is in stark contrast to what is happening right now. Now, notice how John doesn't have fancy titles when he's introduced. He's not a tetrarch. He's not a governor. He's just John, son of Zechariah. And yet, he has more authority than any of these men. Why? Because his authority is not from men. It's from God's word. And Luke quotes Isaiah 40, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. Now to do a little throwback, last year I did a talk on the freedom of forgiveness and I shared some of the words, some of the Hebrew words that are used to describe sin and wrongdoing in the Bible. And one of those words is avon, which we've translated as iniquity. But it literally means to bend, to twist, or to distort. And it's normally used to describe someone's moral character. They have a twisted or crooked character. So we can see here from a quote of Isaiah that God wants to make straight what sin has made crooked in his people. He wants to set things right. So how does he use John for this purpose? What is John's ministry? Well, we see in verse 3 that John went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Um, in a couple of weeks' time, Andy Tilsley is going to come and he's going to talk more about baptism when he talks about the baptism of Jesus. So I'm going to park that for now. But today what we're looking at is the idea of repentance. Yes, they only give me the easy talks here at Christ Church. Um, what does it mean to repent? It's not really a word that we use outside of church, is it? You don't go to work and you're like, I stole the last chocolate digestive. I think I need to repent. Like, that's not what we would say. But if it's in the Bible, we need to understand what it means, especially if it precedes the forgiveness of sins. So the English definition of repent is to express sincere regret or remorse about one's wrongdoing. But I feel like that is quite a weak definition. It's certainly not the definition 
that of the word that is used here in this passage. Uh, the Gospel of Luke was written in Greek, and the Greek word used by Luke is metanoia, which we actually have adopted into our own language as well. And it literally means a change of mind or a change in the inner man. I actually prefer the second version, a change in the inner man, because what we use metanoia in our dictionary for is to describe a deep personal or spiritual conversion. So it doesn't mean just a simple change of preference or decision, but it's a complete spiritual conversion of the inner self where one simply cannot carry on as they once were. So godly repentance isn't simply remorse. It's not just about feeling sorry for what you've done. Um, If you look in the book of Exodus, I'm sure you know the story of Moses when he approaches Pharaoh and says, please let the people of Israel go so they can go into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to God. And Pharaoh says, no. And then Moses says, well, if you're not going to let them go, God is going to cast plagues over Egypt to demonstrate his power and his sovereignty. And of course, this is what happens. We see the 10 plagues are cast over Egypt. And there's several instances where it shows that Pharaoh says to Moses, I regret, I regret what I've done. I'll let the people go if you pray to your God and lift the plagues from us. And so that's what Moses does. He lifts the plagues. He prays to God who lifts the plagues. But then suddenly the plagues aren't there. And what does it say? It says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he refused to let the people go. Maybe we can relate to that. You know, there might be things that we do or a way that we're living that's contrary to God's word. And we know that's the case. And then we experience um, a moment that causes us to feel remorse. Maybe we're caught out in a lie. Maybe we do something that hurts somebody in our lives. Or maybe because of our actions, we bring about circumstances that are just terrible for us. And in that moment, we feel sorry, don't we? We feel like, oh, no, I've done this thing, and I know this is what's happened as a result. We go to God, and we're like, God, I'm so sorry that I've done this. If you just help me through this situation, I won't go back there. And of course, God answers our prayer. The dust settles. People are talking to us again. And suddenly, we forget the whole reason why we were sorry in the first place. And that same thing looks more attractive once more. Real repentance is not like that. It's a deep spiritual change of heart and mind, and it's irrespective of circumstances, and it's evidence in the way that we live our lives moving forward. Um, A testimony that I really like is one from Les Isaac. He's the founder of Street Pastors. He's also the father of Jake Isaac, if you're a Jake Isaac fan. Um, And he has this incredible testimony of when he came to London uh, and got involved in gang culture. His parents were Christians, but he had heard about um, Emperor Selassie uh, from Ethiopia who came to Jamaica and founded Rastafarianism. And so he became a Rastafarian. And the day that he gave his life to God, he had a massive fight with his father And he decided that he was going to kill his father. And I don't mean figuratively, oh, I'm so mad at my dad, I'm going to kill him. I mean, I'm going to go to an army surplus shop shop and buy a machete and kill my father. Like He planned it out. And on his way to go into that shop, 
he came across a Nigerian gentleman. Um, and because Rastafarianism is all about coming back to the motherland, like Les was really interested in finding more about Africa. So he was asking this guy to tell him more about Africa. And this Nigerian man decided to tell him about Jesus instead. And he became a follower of Jesus. He gave his life to God. And all the anger that he felt towards his father, everything he planned to do, dissipated. That is repentance. It's not just, oh, I feel sorry about something in the moment. No, he went on to live a life that was completely different from what he had resolved to do beforehand. Now, when the crowds come to see John and they want to be baptized, he's pulling no punches. He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? That's pretty strong. Imagine if I came on stage, I was like, good morning, Christchurch London, you brood of vipers. Like, you know, um, but he says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. You see, John knows the inner motives of these people. When they're coming to him, they're just doing what is good as what seemed to be done. But their actions are lacking. They're not showing with their lives that they're truly repentant. Furthermore, they believe that they're excused because they're descendants of Abraham. You know, I, I'm Abraham's child. He has the covenant, so I'm covered. Maybe some of us might relate to that. You know, I went to Sunday school as a child. So, like, I'm fine. I'm covered. I, I go to church Easter and Christmas. You can find me there. Like, I'm covered. But that's, again, not real repentance. Because that's us trying to come to God on our own terms. Saying, okay, I'm happy to go this far. But if you want to go further than that, I'm not cool with that. So let's just meet in the middle. And John warns that, like, God doesn't, he's not worried about whether you're a child of Abraham. He can raise up stones as Abraham's children. He can raise up people that are truly living for him, that have lives transformed for him. So the ball is not in our court. It's in his court. We have to come to God on his terms so practically, what does that look like? What are his terms? The people asked John, what shall we do? And he tells them openly and simply to just be generous, to act with integrity, to be honest, and to be content with what they have. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. And then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Now, next month, we're actually starting a series on generosity. And I'm really excited about this because I believe that generosity is one of the key features of a follower of Jesus. It's something that really causes us to stand out. And if you look in the Bible, you'll see that generosity is often something that follows the conversion of new believers. To give you a few examples, Matthew, the disciple, 
previously a tax collector, if you know about tax collectors, they were hated because they were collecting tax for a corrupt empire and then they were extorting money from people to keep for themselves. Nobody likes them. And Jesus comes up to Matthew whilst he's at his tax collector's booth and says, come, follow me. And Matthew leaves his booth. He leaves his livelihood. He leaves all his treasures to follow Jesus because he sees Jesus as his greater treasure. We have Zacchaeus, one, uh, a story that's actually only found in Luke's gospel. Zacchaeus, again, is a tax collector. He climbs up a tree to try and see Jesus. And Jesus sees him and says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. And because Zacchaeus is overwhelmed by the fact that Jesus would even see him and want to know him, what does he do? He says, all the money that I've taken, I will give back four times as much to the poor. He becomes generous, radically generous. Even the early church in Acts, one of the things it says about them is that they shared everything that they had with each other. Can you imagine what that would look like today? Like in the times that we're living in now, cost of living crisis and whatnot, if people in our church community could have that peace of, if anything happens to me, it's actually okay because my church family have me. That is countercultural. That is radical. It may not seem like it as we're talking now, but outside, there are many people who can't experience that kind of generosity or community in their lives. And notice the accessibility of it as well. All kinds of people ask John what they should do. Just um, people who might be in trade or business. You had the tax collectors asking. You had soldiers asking. And he gives them all ways that they can produce fruit in keeping with repentance. There's, we can all do something to show our surrender to God in our lives. So what ways can you do the same? Think about the spaces that you do life in at work, with your family, with your friends, in your social time? Like, how can you live a radically transformed life in those spaces? I had a friend who um, had a colleague in her former job who was really difficult. I think everyone, now that I've said that, is thinking of that person at work. I know. A really difficult colleague. You try and be nice to them, and they're just not nice back. Like, there's just nothing you can do. And everyone tried to avoid this person. But my friend was like, you know what? I'm not going to avoid them because Jesus didn't avoid me. <laughs> he befriended me. He came to love me. And so I must love others, no matter how hard that might be. So she persisted to say hello to this person, even though they weren't very nice to her. And in the end, the person eventually left that place of employment but they actually brought my friend a gift and a card to say thank you to how nice she'd been whilst I'd been working with her. That is just one example of a way that we can live counterculturally to what is around us that shows us who our saviour and who our redeemer is, that shows who we live for. We don't live for ourselves. Repentance is about living for God, laying down your life for him. Now, the crowd at this point, they start to wonder, is John the Messiah? I mean, he's doing all the right things, right? He's telling people to repent. 
for God's forgiveness. He's telling people to be generous, to give to the poor. And this is all what the um, Old Testament scriptures have told us, right? That the Messiah is going to do all these things. He's going to stand up for the oppressed. He's going to stand up for justice, for the poor. He's going to make sure that those who are low are brought high. But John makes it clear to them that it's not him that they're looking for. He says, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff of unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. John is quick to tell them that it's not me. There's another person coming, someone whose sandals he's unworthy to untie. Jesus is coming, and he's not going to baptize people with water, but with Holy Spirit and with fire. Only Jesus has the power to change the hearts of people towards him, to make us into a new creation that is capable of loving him and following him. John's baptism is simply preparing the way. That's what he was called to do. It prepares our hearts in a posture for Jesus to save us and to transform us. And the fact is, even with repentant hearts, we can be in danger of striving, where we put the work of repentance in our own strength, trying to do everything we can to please God, And thinking that that is ultimately what puts us in good standing with God. Rather than using repentance as an invitation of surrender to God. I was raised in a Christian home. My dad was an assistant pastor at my home church. Um, And it wasn't until later on in my teens that I actually became a believer for myself. Where I started to recognize that If the Bible was true, then I had to surrender to God in repentance. But over the next couple of years, I really struggled with this idea that I had to impress God. You know, I had to show him that I'm really sorry, God. I know that I was rebellious when I was growing up and stuff. But now, like, I'm going to be the best Christian I could possibly be because, like, I'm I'm just so sorry for everything that I've done. And to be honest, I felt really trapped. I felt tired. I felt weary. And I was like, is this what, um, you know, being a Christian is meant to be about? Like constantly being on this hamster wheel where you're just trying to keep up, trying to be the best person you can be. And somebody came to talk at our Christian union um, one evening and their message was about grace. And at first I was like, well, obviously I know grace, like vice president of Christian union, don't have to tell me about that. (laughs) But then like... I can only describe that my eyes just opened. The way he described grace, like it wasn't him, obviously, it was the Holy Spirit. But suddenly I realized the good news is good because I don't need to strive. Repentance has brought me before the Lord. But then Jesus extends his hand and he gives me the gift of grace. You need to be repentant because if you don't realize that you need to be saved, then how can you be saved, right? But once you realize that you need to be saved, salvation is there in Jesus. John's ministry of repentance leads him to proclaim the good news. 
His ministry of repentance precedes Jesus' ministry of salvation. Yes, we surrender to God. We lay down our lives. We recognize and confess our sin. But then we look to Jesus to being our hope. It is finished. He's done the work. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. We are free. We don't need to impress him. We don't need to strive. We need to rest in salvation. And that's what makes the good news of God's grace so good. Because it is done. Amen? I wonder if the band could come back up. So coming to land, like what's the application here? How can we apply this to our lives? Well, I think it's mixed, to be honest. What I really want us to do as we come and worship is to just come before God, honestly. It's you and him this morning. I can't stir up anything in you any more than John the Baptist can stir up anything in the people you baptized. It is the work of Jesus you may, there may be lots of people in different places. Maybe you're the person who, you're exploring faith, you're not sure if any of this is true. And you've kind of been putting your, placing your bets on how good of a person you are, the fact that you come to church sometimes, like, that's enough. And maybe God's saying to you, I need you to surrender to me. I need you to trust me. I need you to humble yourself and recognize that living your way doesn't qualify. Try my way. Or maybe we've been striving. Maybe we are still in that mode of repentance where every Sunday we're just like, Lord, like, I'm sorry, I'm a failure, I'm a sinner. And Jesus is saying, I've done it. It's great that you recognize that. But now step into my salvation. Be redeemed As Christians, we're not supposed to live in this wandering of feeling like we're nothing because Jesus has redeemed us. We are children of God. We are saved. Maybe that's how you're to respond this morning. But as the band play, I just really want us to just give it all to Jesus. Wherever we're at, let's surrender to him, knowing that It's not in weakness, it's not in failure, but it's in security because he loves us, he cherishes us, he wants us to be forgiven, to be saved. He wants us to know the freedom of that forgiveness. I can assure you that living his way is far greater and more richer than striving in your own strength. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you sent your son Jesus. That you sent him to deliver a ministry of salvation. I thank you that you sent John the Baptist to prepare our hearts. To prepare the way. To lead us to repentance. And Lord, where we have tried to live our own ways. Where we have tried to do things without you. We bow before you and we repent. We confess our wrongdoing. And we're not just remorseful or regretful for a day. No, we want a change in our inner man, in our inner being. 
where we can no longer live the lives we used to live, but we live lives surrendered to you. And then through that, Lord, we receive your forgiveness through your son, Jesus, who died on the cross for each and every one of us. We receive the gift of salvation that he brings and we step into the freedom that that carries. We're not afraid to lay our lives down for you because we know the everlasting joy and peace and love that that will bring us. And so today we lay ourselves down. We lay ourselves down on your terms, not our own, on your terms. We surrender to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship together.